Well, good afternoon. I'm David Lawrence, uh, the lead pastor here at EBC. And I just want to say Jesus is worth giving up everything you are, giving over everything you have to follow him. And, and being here with us in EBC, right here at this church, right now is exactly where you need to be to learn more about Christ. You don't have to be a Christian to be here. In fact, you don't have to become a Christian to keep coming back. But we do want you to consider giving your life under Jesus' authority because he's worth it. Now, a story has been told of a secret meeting of Christians in a particular country. And halfway through the meeting, there came a loud knocking at the door. Two soldiers with rifles rushed through the door as soon as it was opened. The people were afraid. What was happening? Was their singing too loud? Was there a spy in their midst? The soldiers shouted, if you're not a Christian, get out now. And several people left the house. The faithful gathered to one side of the room, many praying silently. After several minutes, those soldiers put their guns down and smiled. Now that we're sure that we're all true brothers and sisters in Christ, let's have church. Now, I don't know if this event actually happened or if it's just a parable of faithfulness in the midst of persecution, but such a story begs us a few questions. What would I have done? in a similar situation? Would, would I leave to save my life? Or would I have risked my life staying so as not to deny my Lord? Is Christ worth giving up all I have, all I am to follow with all of my life? And would anything less be acceptable to such a savior and king. Well, friends, here we are now at the close of Paul's letter to Rome. And through his greetings and final exhortations, Paul is emphasizing that Christ, who came for all, is worthy of all in faith-filled obedience. That's the main point today. Christ who came for all, is worthy of our all in faith-filled obedience. And we're going to walk through this passage in three main parts. The first is the faithful commended. Secondly, Christ came for all. And lastly, faith-filled obedience. Now, even as Hannah read all those names, which was amazing, Hannah. Uh, 37 names. That's how many specific people that Paul greets 
and who send their greetings along with this letter. And what a list it is. Uh, Several we have heard about as the church grows back in the book of Acts. Some are unknown to us. But there are several things to take note about in this list beyond just the volume of names And our first point, I want you to notice the faithful commended. What that means, commended means that they are praised or they are complimented in some way. And it begins with Phoebe in verse 1 and 2. She's a deaconess in the church at Centrea. Centrea is a city that is very close to Corinth. And Phoebe has been a benefactor. A benefactor. This word has the the meaning of providing for as well as serving. You see, it seems Phoebe may have had financial means to help many people, including Paul. Phoebe's on her way to Rome, we, we find out here. And it seems that she's unknown to the churches there in Rome. And Paul wants to make sure that such a person as Phoebe, who serves so well, is also given the help that she needs. She's the kind of people you want to help. Those who willingly and sacrificially help others. Willingness to sacrifice one's life is how Paul commends the next couple In in verse 3, Priscilla and Aquila, Paul met them on his second journey going around Asia and Macedonia uh, when he's preaching the gospel there. We read about it in Acts 18, 1 and 2, where he says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them and and he began, uh, as a, because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Now they, they accompanied Paul on his trip back to Syria, you see. Uh, and we read about that a little bit later in Acts 18. But they stopped on the way in a city called Ephesus. This is all in modern Turkey. Well, one day, the metal workers who, were, they made these idols uh, there in Ephesus. They started a riot in town. You see, they were losing business because so many people were becoming Christians. And uh, so for two hours, they gathered in the big amphitheater there in Ephesus, and they were shouting praise to Artemis, praise to Artemis. And several of the disciples, you see, Paul wanted to go and address the crowd, but several disciples held Paul back, and they helped him continue on his journey. And some of those were Priscilla and Aquila. Now, Priscilla and Aquila remained in Ephesus teaching the people there. And I think this is what Paul is referring to back in our passage when he says that Priscilla and Aquila risked their lives for me. 
Going on down further in, in verse 7, Andronicus and Junia are commended because they were in prison with Paul. You see, they were willing to sacrifice their freedom for Christ. Sacrificing ourselves for Christ and our brothers and sisters, it might take many forms today. Basically, what this means is, is putting others before yourself. Just like Paul says in Philippi, in the Philippians. For I'll give you an example. When, when we lived in Dubai, one of our staff from India got into a car accident and he was put in jail until it could be de de determined that the child that he hit would live. My colleague, Brian Parks, who many of you know, he was the one who spoke here for the marriage conference, sacrificed his freedom for a short time by giving his own passport to the jailers so that this staff could be released. The police were utterly amazed that somebody would do that for a, this staff. Are you willing to risk your life, to risk your freedom for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Other, other folks that are very interesting out of this list, uh, going back up to verse 5, Paul commends faithful Eponidas, the first convert in the province of Asia. Can you imagine having him in your church? What a joy. And then down in verse 10, Apelles speaks of his fidelity to Christ. That means his faithfulness. His faithfulness to Christ had stood a test. We don't know what the test is. But to be the first to believe in Christ or to stand for your faith through trial is not easy. Ali was the first to believe in his family. The first to believe in Jesus. And he stood for Christ through many trials, from his family, his brothers, his father, having to decline marriage proposals, even trials from other Christians he's had to face, but he's standing firm in Jesus. Maybe you're the first in your family to believe, or maybe you're counting the cost if you were to become the first to believe in Jesus in your family. Is that scary to you? Could you stand firm through the trials that are to come? Well, friend, in Christ, you don't need to stand alone. Jesus said, I will be with you to the very end of the age. And he's, he's going to be with you. But it's not just Jesus. He's given us the church. He's given us the church to stand together. And this, honestly, is how our brother Ali has made it. Through Christ and through the church. Friends, believe in Jesus. Stand firm in your faith. 
and see what God will do. Now in verse 6, let's go back up to verse 6. Paul commends Mary for working very hard. And then down in verse 12, did you see that? When he commends Trophena, Tryphosa, and Persis, again, all women, he commends them for working very hard in the Lord. Working hard. I mean, working hard, is it really important that we work hard? I mean, didn't Jesus encourage his disciples back in in Matthew? Uh, Surely you remember that back in in Matthew uh, 11, where he says, uh, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Didn't Jesus say, find rest? Can't we just sit back, kick our feet up and relax now? Well, what he's really saying here is replace your burdens. Replace your burdens and your wearisome work with my program, with my perspective and my priorities. No, friends, hard work is a high value in the kingdom of God. It's what Jesus expects from us. In fact, in Luke 9:62, Jesus says to his disciples, no one who puts the hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Jesus calls us to hard work. But in this hard work in his kingdom, that's where we find joy and an abundance of peace because that's what the kingdom of God is. We remember that from last week. The kingdom of God is about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. I, you know, as we work through this list, I want to say, like Paul, when you see others working hard in the kingdom of God, let them know that you appreciate their hard work, their faithfulness to Christ or their sacrifice. In our home group this week on Wednesday, I actually had folks write notes, letters, of encouragement to those in the church. And and in that, it's good to be personal and specific when you're encouraging others. Don't assume that they know it. Voice your appreciation. I want to do that now and, and just praise God for our sisters like Purity and Andy and Chris, who have worked very hard for our dear sister Bethreen as she has struggled with cancer. And I want to commend Ali and Darius and Will, our interns, who are thinking well and deeply in their time of study as they 
learn more about theology and what the Bible says about church. I want to thank Padwin, Nyasha, Kelly, Ranjana, and many others who serve our children faithfully so that you can be here and hear God's word. Commending the faithful is one thing to take note of in this list of names. But another thing to notice is who these names represent. This is important as one of the major themes in this letter that Christ came for all. And that's our second point. 37 names. Each unique name represents a unique life. Uh, So much history is behind these names that we'll never fully know who they are or what they were doing or until those of us who believe in Christ see them in heaven. And won't that be a testimony to hear what, what some of these people, these saints who lived and believed so near to Christ's death and resurrection, Eponidas, the first in Asia to believe, Won't it be an amazing thing to hear their testimonies? I appreciate so much hearing Roger's testimony. Praise God. Well, friends, you can begin hearing some amazing testimonies by reading biographies of Christians. That's one way that you can do that. Right now, I'm reading about the 4th century African bishop named Augustine. Uh, His his thoughts and writings shaped church theology and much of Western civilization. Fascinating man. Biographies about theologians like Martin Luther or Jonathan Edwards or about missionaries like Amy Carmichael or Adniram Judson or saints like C.S. Lewis or Susanna Spurgeon are folks that you you would be so encouraged to read of their life and their faith. And we have many of these books available for you. Just come and ask. You can check them out of our library. Well, hey, what else can we learn from this list in Romans 16? Well, some observations. There are 27 men and 10 women in this list. There are 10 Gentiles, or sorry, 27 Gentiles and 10 Jews in this list. We can't know um, for certain the social standing of each one of these people, but it is obvious that there are people of high social status, like Phoebe and Priscilla and Aquila, and some who were slaves, like those uh, in verses 10 and 11 from the household of Aristobulus or in the household of Narcissus. What's clear from this list of names is that the church in Rome was very diverse. Three things to consider. First, consider the gender. So March 8th was International Women's Day. Yay, women. That wouldn't happen in Paul's day. We wouldn't have had International Women's Day back then. 
that any women are on this list is very significant. And, and it's more than one-third of the names that are listed here. Not only that, but three out of the first four had important roles in the church. It's, it's clear from Paul's other letters what leadership roles women had, but the fact that they had any role in a mixed community was unique to the church. From the Gospels, we see the value that Jesus had for women. They were part of his inner circle. They were among the very few followers who stood at the cross. And they were the first to see Jesus resurrected from the grave. And, and as such, they were witnesses, the first witnesses of that event. Women were in the upper room when the Holy Spirit gave birth to the church. You see, what we learn from creation to Jesus to the New Testament church is that men and women have different roles, but they are equal in dignity and value and worth. The second thing to see is status. Now, Paul doesn't address status very clearly in this letter to Romans, as he does in other letters. Yet it is clear that he expects people of high and low status to worship and love one another together in the church. The third thing to consider is ethnicity. Now, Paul has been speaking about that Jew-Gentile issue throughout this letter, from the very first words until these very last ones. And for sure, ethnic diversity was a challenge to the unity in the church in Rome. As we read in Acts 18, it was the Emperor Claudius who had expelled all the Jewish Christians from Rome. That's how Paul met Priscilla and Aquila and during those years when they were outside, it was the Gentile believers who needed to take leadership in the church. And many more Gentiles were added to the church during those years. So that when the Jewish Christians returned to Rome, when they were allowed to come back, that church was much different than the one they left about six or eight years before. There were more people, and it had a much greater Gentile look and feel to the church. Well, it's, it's likely since Paul addresses this letter back in, in chapter 1, he says to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, that he does that rather than saying to the church in Rome, you see. That's how he addresses a lot of the other letters what that means is there may have been multiple churches in this city. What is likely is that some were more Jewish and some were more Gentile. You see, tensions have existed or had existed between Jew and Gentile for thousands of years. But the gospel, the gospel that Paul Proclaims the gospel that we believe changes our community out of our natural cultural responses 
and into a love that supernaturally flows from a new identity in Christ, the new identity that Roger referenced. It's a supernatural family-type love that crosses barriers like gender, like status, like ethnicity. And it brings believers into a supernatural unity through faith. It's that supernatural love that Paul is calling the church to, in Romans 12 to 15, calling them to live out together with one another. This supernatural love, this sincere love moves men and women, Jews and Gentiles, believers from all various different backgrounds to accept one another just as Christ accepted them. To love one another sincerely because, as he said, love fulfills the law. To overcome evil with good. Sincerely loving your brothers and sisters in the church, accepting and forgiving others as Christ has you, living a holy life that overcomes evil with good is the new kingdom of God culture that we must all learn. It's a new culture. We all need transformation in our cultural understanding. The Holy Spirit will help us live this way as we become transformed by faith in Christ. And this is a call to faith-filled obedience. And this is our third point, faith-filled obedience. And, and this is what it means as we consider Christ who came for all and is worthy of our all. Now, between, between Paul's greetings to those in Rome in verses 1 to 16 and the, one, the greetings the, of those that are with him in, uh, in verses 21 to 23, Paul makes one final exhortation, and it's a warning and an encouragement. So there's a warning and an encouragement there in verse 18 to, uh, eight, 18 to 20. The warning is watch out for divisions and contrary teaching. You know, Satan would love to divide the faithful. But when we, as the church, love and, and show unity despite the many differences that are around us that should divide us, who gets the glory for that? God does. God does. You see, and that's where the church becomes a display of the glory of God. And so with that church, calling to you, be careful what you watch and listen to. Not everyone who claims Christ has this same desire to display God's glory in love and unity. Some would rather gather a bunch of followers around themselves to promote their own glory. And, and so be careful 
Be careful of those who would promote themselves, for instance, on social media platforms. You know, those, those platforms, the very idea of social media is based on self-promotion and getting more views, more subscriber. Click, click that button. Well, ask yourself, if you're, if you're thinking about, you know, listening to something, ask yourself a couple questions. Are these teachers looking to benefit themselves in some way? Are they demanding quick action? Or are they patiently waiting for God to work? A better question, or maybe one of the biggest questions you need to ask is, are they using the Bible correctly? When they quote a verse, for instance, would that verse still make sense if you read the verses above it and below it? Make sure that they're using the Bible correctly. And then another question to ask is, is this teaching leading me to connect with my church or to pull away from my church? That's the warning that Paul gives. Let's move now to the encouragement. Paul says, be wise in your obedience. The Roman church had this reputation for obeying Christ and it had become known far and wide. And Paul encourages him, look, continue in this. This is good. In addition to discerning and avoiding false teachers, Paul tells them, be wise about what's good and innocent about what's evil. How can we do that? Well, friends, focus your thoughts towards things that build up your faith and build up the faith of others. There's so much in this world that would want to tear that down. I I worked with university students for a couple decades, and so often I heard young Christians say they wanted to experience everything that the world has so they will know better how to share Christ. It was really just an excuse to sin. Those who ended up choosing that path followed worldly patterns rather than bringing Christ to the world like they said they were going to do. You don't need to study the world's patterns to know how to share the gospel with its people. Uh, We're we're all sinners. We, We all already know the world's patterns. Uh, The world's patterns take you away from God. Better to give yourself to studying God's words and the ways of his kingdom. And what compels people out of the world, what, what compels and draws people out of the world is the uniqueness of obedience to God. You see, when God's people obey him with a holy life and in loving one another like like we do in the church, then you become a magnet to others for the glory of God. Holy love in the gospel community of the church is compelling. Righteousness in the church is compelling. Love is compelling. Faithfulness and forgiveness is compelling. 
That's what will draw people. Well, Paul goes on to encourage that God will give us ultimate victory. Did you, you see that in verse 20? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. What a promise. But what he's saying is that apart from Christ, you are under the power of Satan and sin. You see, that ancient serpent tempted the first humans. As, as Mahindus read, he tempted them to doubt and disobey God's word. And we all now come under the condemnation of death. You see, we all were condemned to death because of their sin. And Satan stands by ready to accuse. But God made a promise, which we read. The last verse that, that, that uh, Mahindus read for us in Genesis chapter 3. He's talking to, the, to, the, he's talking to Satan, to the serpent. And, and he says... I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring or your seed and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. There would be one who would be born of a woman who would come and crush Satan's head. But that victory would come at the cost of his life. It would be that strike on his heel. You see, when the time had fully come, God sent His Son into the world, born of a woman. He lived a perfect life. And Satan thought he had won when Jesus died on the cross. When He died a death that He did not deserve. Satan didn't cause Jesus' death, though. Jesus laid His life down as a sacrifice to make peace with God. He was a substitute for all who would believe in Him. So it's not what you must do to make peace with God, but it's what He has done to bring you to Himself. Uh, Colossians chapter, chapter 2, 13 to 17 says this, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle over them by triumphing over them by the cross. The cross he died on was Satan's strike to his heel. But when Jesus rose from the grave, you see death had no power over him. And in resurrection, Jesus crushed Satan's head. And all you need to do now, friend, is to believe to believe in Jesus, follow him, and he will deliver you from Satan's power. Believe 
Believe that Jesus' death and resurrection alone will bring you into peace with God. It doesn't matter if you're male or female or high or low status. It doesn't matter if you're from this ethnicity or that ethnicity. Jesus will save you. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You see, it's a promise that has been fulfilled, but it's also a promise yet to be fulfilled when Jesus returns. As, as it says in Revelation chapter 20, what a promise we have in Christ. There it says, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. And there the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented night and day forever and ever. Friend, believe this good news and be saved from Satan's power. Be released from the debt of your sin and be at peace with God. Now, if all this was something we had to work hard to achieve, like most of the religions of the world, what they say, then we really wouldn't have peace, would we? If my salvation is dependent upon me, I'm doomed. You're doomed. Because we know our sin. It is ever before us. But Jesus came from heaven. He lived. He died. He rose again for us and for our salvation. And now he has ascended to the Father. And what is he doing there? He's praying for us. Jesus prays for you who believe. Is not such a Savior worth living for? Worth dying for if we have to? Paul closes this letter back in, in chapter 16, verse 25 to 27, with one final benediction. A benediction is it's, it's a compound word. Uh, bene means well or good, and, and desere means a word or, or a saying. It literally means a good word. It's a blessing. There are many benedictions in the Bible, and we use a lot of them here to close our worship services. We say the benediction together at the end of the service. The reason why we do that is so we can hear one another reminding each other of God's blessings. That's why we do that. Well, Paul's benediction to the saints in Rome is to remind them that it is God who establishes them in faith-filled obedience. Now to him who is able, to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery, hidden for long ages past, but now revealed, made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience 
that comes from faith to the only wise God. Be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Look, you who believe in Christ, remember that same God who brought you to himself in the gospel is the same one who will establish you in every good work through the gospel. And, and, and because of that, give yourself sacrificially to your brothers and sisters. But don't do so in a way that sacrifices the gospel that saves you. Stand firm through every test of faith, but stand firm, not in your own strength, stand firm in the strength that he provides. He establishes you so that you can work hard in everything that he gives you to do. But friend, do so resting in his provision, in his program, in his perspective, and in his priorities. Rest in Christ's ability to provide what you need to walk this obedience of faith. He deserves all our praise. For Christ, who came for all, is worthy of our all in faith-filled obedience. Let's pray. Christ, you have done it all. You have done what we could not do. And you have, you have lived the life we could not live. You died the death we deserve, but we could never die. You rose again. And you call us now to yourself. Lord, some here haven't done that yet. And I pray that they would trust in you. Lord, those of us who have trusted you, Lord, sometimes things distract, things tempt, things pull us aside. But Lord, I pray that our hearts would be focused on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, so that we could walk in faith-filled obedience with Christ and with his bride, the church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.